Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. I was reading an article just recently that um, was a uh, a report on a uh, an older news item that came out in May uh, 2021. It was a report that Darwin's Arch. Uh, which is a large rock formation uh, off the Galapagos Islands, off Ecuador, um, had collapsed. So the arch had collapsed due to um, erosion activities. And I thought this um, really reminded me that there is so much geological evidence for a young Earth. When we look at the geological structures that we see. Um, Yet uh, there's this convention that still tries to interpret these ages in terms of millions and hundreds of millions of years, thousands of millions of years, of course, for the age of the continents. But when we look at things like erosion rates, um, we can see that these processes are very rapid. The, the continents can't be that, that old. And so looking at uh, some of the data, um, again, there's this overwhelming evidence that is pointing to a very young age. Uh, one of the uh, scientists that I got to meet when I was visiting the United States is uh, Dr. Ariel Roth. And he had been um, the editor of the journal Origins. And uh, he's a, a very active, uh, scientist um, um, and published quite a bit in the area of evidence supporting a young earth and, and creation. And one of the things that he wrote in um, uh, one of uh, his articles, actually, that he contributed to a book I edited called In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. And um, uh, this uh, and the the book actually is um, available f- uh, free on the internet. If you go to um, the website creation.com and um, did a search on in six days uh, preface, um, then uh, the preface will come up. And um, down the side, you'll see a list of uh, scientists' names. And if you click on the on the names, you um, will get the actual articles written by those scientists, and as well as the um, the uh, biographical data for those scientists, where they earned their doctorate, their areas of research specialisation, and so forth. And then the article goes on as to why they choose to believe in a literal creation. Um, uh, in in six days, only thousands of years ago, and of course, um, Doctor Roth uh, contributed to one of those articles. And if you want to read the full article, um, of, of course, yeah, just just click on his name there. But he points out that one of the most significant differences between creation and evolution is this question of the length of time life has been on Earth, and. Obviously, evolution proposes that life has been evolving for thousands of millions of years, whereas creation suggests that God created the various forms of life in six days um, a few thousand years ago. 
And the creation model for the great flood described in the Bible also provides an explanation, for example, for the fossil layers. While evolution suggests that these fossil layers were formed, um, formed over eons of time. But you know, when we actually look at the data, and Dr. Roth points out that it's of interest to that the recent trends in geological thinking are favouring very rapid changes, which is called catastrophism, uh, to provide interpretations that uh, in actual fact fit well with the biblical flood. It's just that the geologists try to spread them out again over hundreds of millions of years. So we have this evidence of a global water-based catastrophe, uh, but they, the geologists uh, want to explain this by um, an, uh, several major global catastrophes that occurred, spaced millions and hundreds of millions of years in some cases apart. But the, with major problems again with the geology there when we look at erosion rates, as illustrated by the collapse of, of Darwin's Arch um, and um, in recent time. And, and, of course, we see this erosion and shorelines being erosed um, you know, quite rapidly. I've seen massive erosion in my lifetime in our local area um, near the, the coast, east coast of Australia. Now, unfortunately, geology isn't moving towards a biblical interpretation but in our schools and universities. But the only reason they're not doing this is that they have to continue to deny the evidence for a relatively recent global flood. They, they just have to deny the evidence in their face and continue to look for inter alternative long-age explanations. But the problem is that the evidence is continuing to accumulate that these long-age explanations just don't fit the data. They don't work. What works are long-age things. For example, visitors to the Grand Canyon usually, and I've been to the Grand Canyon a couple of times in the United States, hear the usual geological interpretation involving millions of years. And you see this on the signs and so forth and in the booklets that are sold in the, in the shops. And we're told that the horizontal formation at the bottom, which is uh, Tapete Sandstone, was deposited about 550 million years ago. And the Kylab limestone, which forms on the rim, is about 250 million years old. So there's, you know hundreds of millions of years involved here. Now, the Grand Canyon strata extend over about 400 kilometres or 250 miles into the eastern part of Arizona. And these layers are about um, one mile or 1,600 metres lower in elevation. And so it's supposed that the uplift of the Grand Canyon area occurred about 70 million years ago. So that is hundreds of millions of years after the sediments were deposited. So one would have expected that over hundreds of millions of years there would have been plenty of time for the sediments to cement into hard rock. And yet the evidence indicates that the sediments were soft and unconsolidated when they bent because instead of fracturing like 
the basement rocks that are under those uh, sedimentary layers did. The sedimentary layers that were obviously laid down underwater over these hundreds of millions of years, supposedly, the entire layer is bent and it actually thinned as a bent. So what I'm saying is that those layers between the Tapete Standstone and the Kaibab Limestone, um, which spans a time supposedly of about 300 million years, they, um, to explain this structure, they were uplifted. And in the uplifting process, they were bent. They had to be bent from the layers that are still down low up to up, up high. And they're, they're bent at quite an angle in parts, you know, getting up close to 40 degrees, just roughly looking at the, um, uh, the stratigraphy of the area, the diagrams that you see. And so they, to bend these, all these layers at that time, without any fracturing, is powerful evidence that those layers were soft when that happened. And so you, you can't have this 300 million you know, period, the whole lot, just bent like that uh, without fracturing. Um, because, uh, again, when we look at, when, you see, when we carry out an investigation, when we look scientifically at this and we, for example, um, look at the sand grains, they don't show any evidence of the material was brittle or rock hard because none of the grains are elongated. Um, neither has the mineral cementing the grains together been broken and re-crystallised. So evidence, just when we look at the, you know, at the structure that we can look under the microscope, the whole evidence points that that whole you know, uh, 1,200 metre, 4,000 foot thickness of strata must have still been plastic when it was uplifted. In other words, it couldn't have been millions of years old. Those millions of years old of geologic time are just imaginary. But the geologists have to imagine that to fit in with their evolutionary timescales. But this plastic deformation of the Grand Canyon strata dramatically demonstrates the reality of catastrophic global flood occurring over a short period of time that those layers were were laid down. Now... The other thing that we often um, observe, again, when we look at um, these, uh, these layers, is uh, that supposedly laid down over you know, hundreds of millions of years are the, are the fossils. Now, there are many layers in which we find fossil animals. Now, the, most animals require plants for food in order to survive, or, and, of course, some of the animals are, are are eaten by other animals, but basically there's got to be plant-eating animals there to start the chain. And yet in several of our important geological formations where we find good evidence for animals, we find little or no evidence for plants necessary to support the animals. The fossil assemblages that we find are incomplete ecosystems. And so we have to ask the questions, how did animals survive for the millions of years postulated for the deposition of these formations without adequate food? And instead, what we find in the fossil layers represents what we would expect from massive catastrophic event 
and the different materials being sorted under these flood rapid transport conditions. Um, and you know, the, a number of the, these sort of inconsistencies with the long age model have been reported in the literature. Uh, for example, there's um, in the Gobi Desert of Mongolia, there are protoceratops dinosaur bearing layers um, where there's hardly any plants. Um, in the Coconino uh, sandstone, again, that runs through the Grand Canyon in the southwestern US, United States, it has many hundreds of good animal trackways, but no plants, no plant fossils. Um, another one is the Morrison Formation, again, where they find a lot of the dinosaurs. And again, the, those, uh, the Morrison Formation runs through the Grand Canyon as well. It's a massive formation um, that runs from about New Mexico to Canada. Um, and so as well as not having any sort of slow, uniformitarian uh, explanation for this. I mean, the, this huge formation had to be formed under a massive catastrophic global condition, which is exactly what is described in the Bible. That was a global flood. And this important dinosaur-bearing formation, um, identifiable plant fossils are practically non-existent. So we find lots of dinosaur fossils but very, very few plant fossils. And so what did these giant animals eat as they evolved over millions of years? Because it's estimated that the large plant-eating dinosaur would eat, you know, three and a half tonnes of, of, of vegetation in one day. And so, again, a far more plausible scenario for these deposits is that they represent layers laid down rapidly during the biblical flood with the waters sorting the organisms into various deposits and plants forming some of our huge coal deposits. So when we look at coal, coal is again powerful evidence for not only uh, young earth and short timescales, but also, of course, for the global flood. Now, we find coal deposits all around the world, and some of them are huge in their thickness, you know, hundreds of feet, hundreds of metres thick um, in, in some places. And these layers are around now um, in the uh, area where I live on the east uh, coast of Australia here. Um, not far away is the port of Newcastle. I think I was reading... Uh, somewhere just in one of the newspapers recently that it's um, the largest uh, coal exporting port in the in the world. Well, anyway, we certainly export a lot of coal from here from the nearby um, Hunter Valley and there's lots of, a number of very large coal deposits, particularly down the east coast of Australia. And one of those is the um, found in the Latrobe Valley in, in Victoria. And um, the, the coal seams there occur within thick layers of clay, sandstone and basaltic lava, which, um, and, and together these form about a, a 700 metre or just over 2,000 foot uh, sequence of rocks known as the Latrobe Valley Coal Meshes. And um, these, of course, lie in a, in a deep depression called a basin. It's... Um, roughly about 300 um, kilometres uh, long and uh, the same uh, wide. 
Um, much of the basin actually lies under the ocean off uh, the southern coast of Australia there. And uh, the offshore coal measures um, I've read in one report uh, are supposed to be almost five kilometres thick. This is, this is huge. And so these coal uh, consists of a massive, uh, very fine plant debris, um, and, and, and much of it, uh, well, quite a bit of it is partly decomposed plant remains. Um, and so this is, enables uh, scientists to identify what the uh, you know, plant material was. But what's the explanation for the accumulation of these huge deposits? So the standard theory that we learn, of course, is the, um, is the swamp theory. But there's, uh, and that is that the plants grew in a swamp, they fell over, rotted, and there were layers just deposited, and they grew up, fell over uh, in the swamp, rotted down, fell over, rotted down, and so forth. And I can remember learning that when I um, did geology at university. But there's powerful evidence that these brown coal deposits did not accumulate in a peat bog or a swamp. So, first of all, there's no sign of soil under the coal, um, as you'd expect if the vegetation grew and accumulated in a swamp. Instead, these coal deposits rest on a thick layer of clay, and there's a knife-edge contact between the clay and the coal, and this kaolin clay is so pure that it could be used for high-class pottery. But also, there's no roots penetrating the clay. So you've got this clear layer where the the plants start, and there's no roots down in there. So again, it doesn't fit this long-age uniformitarian model. It it fits a flood model. Um, The other interesting thing is there's a number of distinct ash layers that run horizontally through the coal. And we would expect if the vegetation had grown in a swamp um, and uh, a, um, a geologist I know, Taz, Rorder, uh, Taz Walker, wrote a report of this and in the report he, he talks about that if the vegetation had grown in a swamp, these distinct ash layers would not be there. After each volcanic eruption, the volcanic texture of the ash would have been obliterated when the swamp plants you know, recolonised the ash and turned it into soil. But not only is there no soil, but the vegetation found in coal is actually not the kind that grows in swamps today. So again, when we, when we drill down and we look at the evidence for these models and scenarios that we're being taught in school and university, and we look at the data that we can actually measure now today, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the theory. Um, For example, um, in the uh, Latrobe Valley, the vegetation found in the coal is very similar to that found in mountain rainforests. Um, And and one uh, researcher suggested that the best match for the mix of vegetation in the coal occurs in the mountains on the western half of uh, Papua New Guinea at at a height of uh, between... uh, uh, 1,200 and 2,200 metres, or between 4,700 feet against uh, sea level. 
and similar vegetation is also found in the mountains of Australia, Malaysia, New Caledonia and New Zealand. So they're not the kind of plants that grow in a swamp or floodplain. Um, in fact, most of the types of plants that have been found in the Latrobe coal measures still grow today. Um, these uh, plants, um, and most of them actually came from, uh, from conifers, um, a group uh, including pines, spruces and cedars. And it's interesting that um, most of these plants too are not actually not swamp tolerant. Um, the um, uh, Norfolk pine um, is um, one of the plants uh, of the uh, Aracugaria um, type of uh, uh, species and it tends to grow uh, in sandy soils and tolerate sea spray uh, but it does not like waterlogged conditions. Um, another uh, one uh, uh, the ca- of uh, uh, Agathus, or which uh, the cowrie pine is an example. These um, are, are big trees, and again, cowrie pines don't grow in swamps; they prefer well-drained, deep, moist so- soils. Um, another one is um, the Huon pine, and again, it needs good drainage. Another one is the celery top pine, another Tasmanian type. Uh, tree that prefers cool, moist, well composted soil, but it does not grow in waterlogged conditions. Um, another uh, a pine is the brown pine that prefers well drained soils, not swamp conditions. Um, out of some of the non conifer plants that have been identified, uh, Casuarinas um, are one that's uh, commonly found, but there's only two of the 30 species of Casuarinas that uh, tolerate poor drainage. And so most prefer light, well-drained soils. Uh, Of course, the she-oak will grow in swampy conditions. But it's only, as I said, one of the 30 or so species. Banksia, again, um, only only two of the 47 species of Banksia tolerate swampy conditions, and most prefer well-drained conditions. the native New Zealand red beech, um, Nothophagus uh, fusca, um, again, it uh, is a cool temperate rainforest tree found at high altitudes. They don't grow in swamps. So it's clear that overall the plants identified in this massive brown coal deposit are not the sort that grow in the wet swampy conditions. Most are drought tolerant and grow at high altitudes. But the fact that they're all found dumped in this massive deposit is very consistent with a huge water-based catastrophe that swept vegetation from these um, air, you know, air non-swampy areas into a, a basin that had formed. So you know, when we look at it overall, coal deposits a very strong evidence for a catastrophic global flood. It's also interesting that our know, experiments have been done uh, with conditions mimicking um, natural forces that can produce coal in actually very short periods of time. In some of these experiments, brown coal 
has been uh, formed in weeks and black coal in months. Um, and uh, similarly, you know, experiments are being done uh, to show that oil can form quickly too. Opals can form quickly. Um, and um, so again, uh, there's also evidence for rapid petrification of wood and, and these sort of things in experiments that have been done. So when we look at these things in other um, areas, again, we point to these evidence of, of re, these deposition of these layers occurring uh, rapidly. We find, um, for example, in some layers there can be evidence of uh, raindrop marks, ripple marks and animal tracks at the boundaries of layers um, and yet there's no erosion in between the layers. And so again, this all points to rapid deep deposition of these layers. There's uh, you know, examples of in some places of layers that are completely missing in terms of geologic time. There's uh, also um, examples of wormholes, root growth and, and these sort of things across these paraconformities that again point to the fact that they couldn't have been laid down, the boundaries don't represent layers laid down over long periods of time. They are very... Um, short periods of time. In fact, the almost complete lack of clearly recognisable soil layers anywhere in the geological column is a major problem. And um, um, of course, you know, when you look at the literature, geologists do claim to have found lots of fossil soils, or they call palisols. But often these, in most cases actually, these are very different to the soils today, lacking the features that characteristic soil, that characterise soil horizons um, and the features that are used to classify different uh, soils. In fact, everyone that's been investigated thoroughly proves to lack their characteristics of proper soil. And yet if, you know, we would think if deep time, these long millions of years, ages, were correct with hundreds of millions of years of abundant life on Earth, there should have been ample opportunities many times over for soil formation. Of course, other, there's many other examples of rapid formations of geological structures such as canyons, such as Providence Canyon in southwest Georgia, uh, the Burlingame Canyon near Walla Walla, Washington, uh, the lower Lutwit Canyon near Mount St Helens. And so these are canyons where we've actually observed them forming very rapidly, uh, not over millions of years. And, of course, another classic example of um, rapid uh, formation uh, is the, uh, the island Surtsey, which formed as a, a volcanic eruption. And um, we saw, you know, the gradual development of plants and animals and insects or insects and so forth on, on the island was uh, observed since it was uh, uh, erupted last century. So we have, everywhere we look, clear geological evidence for a young Earth. The old Earth Age model really doesn't fit the evidence when we grill down and scrutinise the evidence. So we have powerful evidence for the historical record in the Bible as the account of our origins, how we came to be here. 
You've been listening to Faith and Science. Remember, if you want to re-listen to these programs, just Google uh, 3abnaustralia.org.au and click on the Listen button. And remember to tell your friends about these programs and the many other great programs that are available on 3ABN Radio. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.